Let us pray. Lord God, create in us clean hearts. We come as people who are desperately in need of purity, desperately in need of pardon, desperately in need of purpose in this confusing world. And so we ask you to provide that once again for us, and we trust that you will provide it through your word, that it would not return to you empty, but that it, by your own spirit, would accomplish the purposes that you have sovereignly set out for it to do right here today in this place now as we open it together and delight in it as your children. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. It's a delight to be with you today and to open the word of God together and to sit under it and to let it set us free. We're in a new sermon series, as Sam said. It's for three weeks. It's called Disciplines of Disciples. And it's the new year, so it's a good time to be looking at this sort of thing. But as Sam said, when we talk about disciplines as Christians, we're never talking about things we do to earn the favor of God but the things that we do after we have freely received that favor by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there are many things that we can look at and we will in future years. One of the things we're gonna look at today is confessing, confessing sin through Psalm 51. Next week, we'll look at delighting, delighting in the Lord. And then the last week will be the discipline of waiting, waiting upon the Lord. And as we do this, one of the things I want to challenge us as a congregation to do, especially with Psalm 51, is to memorize the psalm that we're preaching through that week. And I know that's a lot to ask. Believe me, I'm the type of person who names, numbers, dates, birthdays, very, very hard for me to remember those sort of things. I I suspect I'm not the only one here who struggles with that. Uh, Last week, I went to the Virginia DMV. I've had an Australian license. I figured it's time to get a Virginia license. And they said, phone number. And I just said, my phone number is, my my phone number is. And the lady said, is. Now come the numbers. And I actually had to look in my cell phone, in my own context, to see what my number was. Friends, that's nine digits. This psalm is 19 verses. Okay, so if you're one of the folks who is saying, I can't do that, I don't do that, it's not my wheelhouse. I get it. I want to challenge you to do it because here's the thing. 20 years ago, when I first got this tattered old, look at this Bible. There's not even a cover on it. Okay. That means either I'm really holy or I'm a hipster. I don't know. I'll let you decide which one. Or it's just really bad faux leather. Um, I got this Bible. And the reason I'm preaching from this Bible, of course, I have other Bibles to preach from, is because if you ever had a, a Bible where you know not only the page that your favorite verses are located on, but you've kind of marked them up. You know even where the page splits. Well, this Bible is one of those Bibles for me. I got it when I first got saved, when I first met Jesus 20 years ago. And Psalm 51, for some reason, was one of the first verses of Scripture, passages of Scripture that I memorized entirely. Well, almost entirely. I kept getting to verses 18 and 19 at the end of the Psalm. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And I had no idea what that meant. And so I thought, I'll just memorize the first 17 verses. And that's what I did for 20 years until I came to the text about two or three weeks ago and said, I'm going to have to preach all the verses. 
And what I realized when I did that was that 18 and 19 are not a sort of foggy, bizarre appendix, build up the walls of Jerusalem, where the rest of the psalm just immediately applies to me. No, no, no. In coming back to the psalm and really studying it, and I'm going to share this with you today, it's not a foggy, bizarre appendix. It's a framework for confession. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Before we get into how that works, I want to acquaint you with a bit of what this psalm is talking about. The psalm is a psalm of King David, who was the king of Israel. It's a penitential psalm. That's a psalm for repentance, for turning from sin, expressing sorrow from sin. And it's a psalm about a serious sin of David. When David was king of Israel, he committed an adulterous affair with another man's wife in Israel. The woman was impregnated, and then David schemed to have her husband killed, which he was. And the prophet Nathan calls David out on this in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And this psalm, this psalm is David's prayer of deep repentance, deep pleas for God's purifying power in his heart, deep pleas for God's pardon. But those pleas and that sin, those are not merely a private matter between David and God. And that's how I took it when I first came to this psalm many years ago. But what I missed in build up the walls of Jerusalem was this. That when a father falls, it's not just the father that falls. The faith of the whole family is severely shaken. When a leader fails, the security of the whole people is swept away. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Friends, sin doesn't build up walls. It breaks them down. And just like David in his sin had not only broken fellowship between himself and God, but he had crushed and broken the spirit and the sanctity and the security of his whole people as the leader, so too, I want to suggest that sin in our lives is never simply about the secret places that I hide it between me and God. Sin breaks down the walls of holiness in our hearts, yes, but in our homes and in the communities that we have charge of and care for. Sin breaks down the walls, but David's point also gives us an antidote today that I want you to hang on to as we open these verses. Sin breaks down the walls, but confession is how God builds back up the walls of holiness by the power of his Holy Spirit. And God builds back up those walls by bringing us very low in humility through repentance and confession. And on the other side of that is not religious moping and sadness. It is joy. It is freedom. The greatest freedom you could ever know. The freedom and truth of the gospel. When you look at that in three ways as we get to Psalm 51. We're going to see how confession builds up the walls of holiness in our lives, in our families' lives, because confession is a fitting response to the awareness and sorrow that we have of sin. That's the first place we're going to land. The second place we'll go is that confession purifies us through God's own abiding presence within us. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And the third place we'll go after confession, after cleansing, is to mission. 
Confession prepares us for the mission that God has for our lives and for the life of our church. It allows us to be part of the people through whom God builds up the walls once again. So travel with me, if you will, through Psalm 51. I invite you to open it or to open it on your phone or whatever you have. We'll start with verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God. Well, the psalm begins in verses 1 and 2 with an obvious plea for God's mercy, a plea for God's pardon. And then it moves very quickly at the end of verse 1 through verse 2 to a kind of cascade of requests for purity, for holiness. Hear what David says. Hear it pronounced over you. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. David's request for cleansing, of course, is more than just asking for an outward washing, right? David's appeal for cleansing is to a purification of the heart that only comes through the purifying power of God's sanctified Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Sin doesn't only alienate us from God, it pollutes us. And we've all felt this. Even if you've not, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, you've felt this. You ever have anything go wrong in your life? A bad day, a fight with a friend, an argument with a spouse, a grade you received at university that you thought was unfair? Often, strangely, in our minds we'll say, you know what, I just got to go take a hot shower. Maybe I'll feel better after a hot shower, as if the shower is going to wash away that problem. Now, we know Videl Sassoon and, you know, head and shoulders or even less uh, superior shampoos are not going to wash away our problems, right? We know that there's no sacramental efficacy in the public water system of Fairfax County or in Arlington County. But we somehow think, man, we're going to feel better after we just kind of take a shower and wash this away existentially, spiritually, in ourselves. I mean, the act of Christian baptism is a powerful sign and sacrament of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us when we wash outwardly with water and call God through faith to cause someone to be born again inwardly by the Spirit of God. We know about the desire to be cleansed, don't we? But actually, the first four verses are not so much figured around cleansing as figured around the practice of repentance and an awareness of sin. Verses 5 through 12, David just slam dunks cleansing and he just goes on and on. So we're going to kind of park that for now and come back to cleansing. Let's look at awareness of sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You see, in confessing, David is not, you know, throwing out a so-called Hail Mary penitential pass, crossing his fingers, saying, I hope it lands on a, a God who's gracious and merciful and not a vicious and vindictive one. It's not that kind of request. David comes forward in confidence. Why? Because he comes forward to a God whose character, whose essence, whose nature, whose track record is mercy, is love, is faithfulness. David comes forth in confidence, not because of who he is, but because of who God is and who God has proven himself to be from the beginning of time up until that point in his life, despite David's mess of a life that he had made. 
Now, the word translated steadfast love, or if you're in the King James, I love this one, loving kindness. You ever heard translated like that? That's hesed in Hebrew. One commentator says hesed is like loyal love. It's the kind of love that says, I'm not only committed to you until death do us part. No, I'm going to defeat death so that we will never be apart. Hesed is God's familial love. It's a fierce love. It's a love that follows through, that never fails to deliver in its faithfulness. That's Hesed love. It's on that basis that David has the courage to come forward in conviction of his sin for healing before a holy God. And that is our inheritance as well. From the time that you're a small child up until today, hopefully, and usually in the services as well, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what do we say? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. What are some ways that we can live out a kind of awareness and practice of repentance? Well, one is as simple as the Lord's Prayer, but that's the problem, sort of. The Lord's Prayer becomes something that we're so familiar with that it can take on a sort of rote character rather than an intentional, repentant kind of thing. We might just be spouting off religious words rather than repenting through the words that Jesus himself gave us to pray. And so we have to examine ourselves when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we say, forgive us our trespasses, do we have no sins in mind that day? Nope, it's not a sin day for me. It's a good one. It's a good one. I'll say the words anyway because I'm respectful. No, 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 no. Are the sins that we are living in that are crushing us coming to mind when we pray, forgive us our trespasses? Are we just spouting that off to God? It's our heritage as Anglicans and as Christians, but do we treasure it and pray it rightly? David gives us a way happily to understand if we are cultivating a repentant intentionality or if we're just living by religious rote. Look at verses three and four. David says, I, David says this, look, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What does that mean? Underneath ever before me in the Hebrew is really continually and vividly present to me. Isn't that interesting? Continually and vividly present to me. I'm constantly aware of my sin, in other words. It's always on my radar. The only reason that David comes to confess in the first place is because of this continual, vivid awareness of sins. You notice what David doesn't do. David, David does not say, well, it was a little sin, but we're going to just sweep it under the rug. We just sweep it under the rug. It's not that bad. It's not one of the really bad sins. There are worse people. You see that guy over there? He's worse. She's worse. No, no. He doesn't attempt to make excuses or to appeal God's righteous judgment. He doesn't look at his position of power and say, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I am David. Yeah, let's make that go away. David doesn't do that. What does he do? In verse 4, David acknowledges that his sin against someone made in the image of God is actually a sin in his essence against the holy, almighty God of the universe himself. David says, against you, you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is aware of his sin. He doesn't sweep it away. He confesses it and he brings it to God. What are some other ways that we can do that? Right? Is this just something we can say, good, let's move on? No, no, no. Let's apply this, right? We want to be people who confess and are aware like David is. In our liturgy, we will oftentimes pray together a corporate prayer of confession. You've probably all done that before. It's usually like this. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And it continues. And it's a great way to confess sin only we do it every week. Some of us will do it every day if you pray through the prayer book or on your own time. But are we doing it with repentant intentionality? Or again, is it just rote religion? Well, here's one way to not miss that moment. Every week when you worship with the brothers and sisters of the church, united to the church across the globe by the Spirit, here's how to do that. You can be intentionally repentant in corporate confession by arriving at church having already bowed down and humbled your heart through having your sin continually and vividly present to you. Not when the confession goes up on the screen and you have to think, what am I confessing? Right? Have you ever done that? It happens quick. And, and, and sometimes you can just spout off the words. If you want to examine yourself, you have to prepare yourself. If you want church to affect you in your inmost being, you have to be ready to come with your sin vividly, continually before you. There's also personal confession, and the Bible talks about this in James 5.16. We prayed earlier as a church that we were the priesthood of believers, right? That it's not just Sam or me or someone else doing the work of ministry, that we together are doing the work of ministry. Even our kids prayed that up front. It's amazing. What does James 5.16 say? Confess your sins to each other. To each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. And this is a powerful thing. So you want to find people you can trust and be around that you can be accountable to. Spouses, friends, family, brothers and sisters who you trust and have known for a long time. But confessing your sin to each other is not just, I got to get this off my chest. It's an instance for healing and growth in holiness. Yes, confession begins with an awareness of sin, and David is very aware, and a sorrow for sin. Have mercy on me, O God. But it never stops there. It always moves on to purification from sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Look at Psalm 51, verses 5 through 12. What's amazing to me when I get to this part of the psalm is that David just kind of continually fires off all these pleas to God. And the effect of it when you take it in together is quite profound. Let me just read it in quick succession for you, starting from verse 7. Purge me, wash me, let me hear, let me rejoice, hide your face, blot out, create in me, renew in me. Please don't cast me away. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
restore me, uphold me. These are the pleas of a person who is desperate for purity. These aren't just cavalier shouts out to God. These are prayers of desperation, and you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, and I do every day when I pray this psalm. Do we have David's sense of holy urgency when we think about the power of sin in our lives? Is David's disposition the default disposition of our hearts? Does his zeal seem kind of weird, kind of foreign to us? It's very tempting to come to God if you've been a Christian for a long time or even if you're not even a Christian and you just want God to behave like you think he should. It's very easy to come to God presuming upon his loving kindness rather than pleading for his abundant mercy. And don't get me wrong. We should come to God the Father confidently through Jesus Christ, his son, confidently, but never presumptuously. Because the same God who is Hesed love is also holy love. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the holy love of God is a consuming fire. It's a fire that refines the penitent, but a fire that consumes the presumptuous. And the problem is for us, we say, that sounds true, sure. Well, we look at verse 5, and what do we see in verse 5? That from the womb, we have been sinful. That's a hard truth to affirm when you see cute kids up front, babies, when you're at a park and everybody's playing nice, you go, surely this isn't how life is. But when you've lived long enough to turn on the news in the morning, you can see that at the depths of every human heart is chaos waiting to graduate to a new level. And the gospel is the answer and the hope and the joy on the other side of that chaos. Yes, we from the womb have sin and even to the tomb, you could say, carry that sin. But along with that sin as a pervasive presence, what do we have? A more powerful presence in the indwelling of God himself that purifies us, that pardons us, and that perseveres us to the end in holiness. That's what it means when it says, creating us a clean heart. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I want you to look at something in verse six, though. It says, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What does that mean? Is that just another way to say our inner being? Well, if we look behind it, the word secret is most often used in the Hebrew Bible to talk about, actually, fountains and wells. Hmm, very interesting. Fountains and wells. I have neither a fountain or well, therefore, this verse doesn't apply to me. Well, no. It's used to talk about fountains and wells that have been intentionally stopped up when you're in a war so that your enemy cannot make use of the valuable resource of water. The stopped up well is the same word for secret heart. It's a secret well. And what does this have to do with what David's saying here? Well, it really gets us underneath the text because it affirms that without God's recreative, regenerating, redeeming Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we live in a place cordoned off from God. We live in the inner well of our stopped up well of a heart where nothing can come in and no blessing can come out. And we think 
We think this is just between, look, it's my problem. It's between me and God. It's just between me and God. But just like David's sin destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the integrity of those outside of himself, those who are under his care, so too the fault lines of the seismic pressure of sin that we try to stop up and keep inside never stays inside. It carries through to destroy the walls of holiness in our homes and in our communities and over those whom we exercise spiritual care. And friends, we cannot build up the walls of holiness if we've stopped up the well of the interior life from God coming in. And when we do that, David says in verse 8, there's a heaviness that comes with that. Have you felt heaviness from sin before? David certainly does. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Let me hear joy. Let me hear gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, or sometimes translated crushed, let those crushed, broken bones rejoice. David is not wanting to sing some sadistic song about receiving a divine beatdown and then saying, how great is this? I love it. No, David is acknowledging through beautiful words the reality of the total crushing heaviness of sin. Sin is heavy and it weighs us down, but at the same time, David is exalting about the grace of God that lifts that heaviness. And anybody who has ever been stressed knows exactly what David's talking about, which I would assume is everybody in this room. It would be a miracle if it weren't in this day and age. Some of us experience stress or anxiety so badly that it's debilitating, it's daily. But we've all described probably stress as a feeling of a weight, like a huge, thick, two-ton metal weight just being pressed down on us from the moment you wake until the moment you go to bed. And sometimes it's so severe that you cannot even move, so heavy is the burden, so overwhelming is that weightiness. Let me hear joy and gladness let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's David saying, preach the gospel over me. I feel the heaviness of sin. I feel the weight of sin. I need it removed from me, and I trust in a loving, merciful God who can take that sin and put it on the shoulders of someone else for me and pay the price for me. David's saying, pronounce that, sing that over me. And it does us no good to ignore the heaviness of sin. Because the greater the heaviness perceived in confession, the more profound is the weight that is lifted in absolution. Only an unburdened back, only an unstopped inner well can then go on to participate in rebuilding the walls of holiness in our own lives, in the communities we serve, and in the people we care about. Confession, cleansing, and then the last point. Then, and only then, does David get to mission. We want to go, 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 go from the moment we wake up to the moment we lie down. And confession seems like it's just going to get in the way of that. But David doesn't say, go, 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 then confess. He says, confess, be cleansed, be unburdened. Then, it says in verse 13, do you notice that? 
then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then I will teach. One of the reasons we gotta memorize a psalm and you should pray it every day is because if we wanna be about the mission of God, we better start, David would say, on our knees pleading for mercy way before we're ever up on our feet engaging in gospel ministry. That is the pattern that leads to holiness in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. In other words, the prerequisite to mission is repentance. I know it's a paradox, but it's true. And brothers and sisters, as you think about adopting different ways to live out this intentional, repentant lifestyle through confession, as you think about the cleansing and mission that comes through confession, examine yourselves. If I were to ask you, for instance, or if someone were to ask me, when did you last repent and confess your sins? Would your answer be something like, on a warm summer day at youth camp in 1972, right? That's okay for a start, right? But might I suggest our answer, if it's going to be in accord with God's word, has to go a little bit deeper than that. Maybe on a warm summer day at youth camp in 1972 or 2002 or 2022, whenever, and approximately 47 times a day, every day since then, until I meet the Lord again. That's what confession is about. Not, not I repented once upon a time, but I am constantly repenting all of the time. And therein is my joy. And therein is my pardon. And there is my peace, paradoxically, through being brought low in repentance. Man, when pride sneaks in and it demands to take up permanent residence in your heart, deny its stopped up seismic potential. Build up the walls. When lust convinces you that, hey, psychologists say it's okay to grow really close to people who are not your spouse, to desire them, to delight in them, to engage physically with them or emotionally, build up the walls. Build up the walls when any sin, any idol, any worldview, any false story stakes a claim for the ultimate affections at the center of your heart shouting, consume me. I'm good. I'll make you happy. Let me break people down through you. What shall our response be, weak vessels that we are? Build up the walls, oh God. Build up the walls of my family, oh God. Build up the walls of this church, oh God. Lord, give me a heritage of holiness, not an inheritance of iniquity. Give me a legacy that leads to life rather than an endowment that leads to death. And do so, do so through the humility of being brought low in repentance, in confession. So that by being brought low, God can take his perpetually penitent people and start to build up the walls once again in ourselves, in our families, in the world around us and that he'd receive great glory for this. And that on the other side of that, they would be not weeping, but they would be very great, unending, abiding joy. It's your heritage, it's your inheritance. Grab onto it and live in it, always before you, empowered by God's spirit. Let's pray.
Lord, we are so incapable of really doing anything apart from you. And so we just ask ourselves that as we bow our hearts in humility, you would show us on the other side of that a lifting of the heaviness. I pray for a lifting of the heaviness that comes from sin when it tries to sit on our shoulders. And I thank you, Jesus, that the heaviness that fell on your shoulders, taking my place, taking our places, has been vindicated in the resurrection. And as far as east is from west, so you have forgiven the sin that we have imagined in our hearts and lived out in our lives. Thanks be to you, glory to you in the gospel, and through your church.